Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Vice President of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, welcome everybody, uh, those of you who are here in the room uh, with us since we're back to doing live events and those who are, are joining us via the stream. Uh, we are delighted that you're here. Uh, and we are honored today uh, to hear a keynote speech by Judge David Strauss on how his grandparents' experience during the Holocaust shaped his life and his views on the First Amendment. Uh, given the rise of anti-Semitism, ongoing threats to religious liberty, and the rise of the cancel culture and the seeming devaluation of the First Amendment, this topic is particularly timely. Uh, after Drudge uh, Strauss speaks, we're going to be joined by Professor Josh Blackman and by my colleague Joel uh, Griffith to explore some of these issues, uh, but I will introduce them at that time. Uh, first, we are going to hear from Judge Strauss. Judge Strauss. So, so Judge David Strauss is a judge on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, having previously served for a number of years uh, as a, an Associate Justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Kansas Law School, and he clerked for Judge Melvin Brunetti on the Ninth Circuit, Judge Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit, and then for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. Prior to becoming a judge, Judge Strauss served for a number of years on the faculty of the University of Minnesota Law School, where he taught and wrote in the areas of federal courts and jurisdiction, constitutional law, criminal law, and law and politics. Judge Strauss, the floor is yours. First of all, thank you for coming. Um, thanks to all of you who are out there virtually. Um, and thanks to John Malcolm and the Heritage Foundation for setting up this talk. Um, this is a, a topic um, that is extremely uh, personal to me, um, as you might imagine. Um, it involved um, a, a labor of love in the sense that I've spent many years in my grandparents' papers, many of which actually are in the United States Holocaust Museum, you know, just down the road. Um, and when I'm asked, why am I talking about this now, I think that uh, John has it exactly right. I think this is the right time to be talking about some of these things. Um, I think that people need to hear it, and I think that there's a lot to learn um, from history, and in particular, my grandparents' experiences um, over 70 years ago. Um, as you can imagine, I'll probably get emotional during certain parts of the talk as I, as I use my grandfather's words and, and talk about their experiences. But the thing that I want to get across is what they went through has affected me personally. Um, it's shaped how I approach the law to a certain extent. I'm an originalist and a textualist, um, but I can't help to be uh, shaped um, by what is, you know, my family history. Um, and the real, the real lesson for me is that their experiences have shaped me in ways that I don't know that I can really truly appreciate. And I'm going to do my best to tell you how that has happened and, and what effect they've had on me. But I, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard for me to even know. Um, so. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I've learned as I've, as I've been a judge now for 11 years is um, those core principles that I have, first principles is what we call them in the law, um, those core beliefs of how I, sh how I view the law, um, those things have, have had an effect. Um, the, the, my grandparents' experience have had an effect on how I view those things. Um, so for example, I'm going to use the prism of freedom of speech. Uh, years before I ever learned about the freedom of speech or the First Amendment in law school, um, I learned about what it means to speak for my grandparents. Um, my grandfather, Walter Strauss, did not have a chance for much of a life before the Holocaust. Born in 1924, he was sent to a labor camp and then to Auschwitz in 1943. He was one of too few to survive. My grandfather passed away in 1995, after I had known him for only two decades, but the lessons from his life shaped me to this very day. I didn't fully realize his impact on my life or truly understand his suffering until many years after his death. In a way, my exploration of his life today is my way of honoring what he has meant to me 
and to other members of my family. My first memories of my grandfather were from a young age. I grew up knowing him as a survivor, and I watched how he lived his, wife, lived his life after liberation. By the time I came into the world, he was already afflicted with multiple sclerosis, a disease that took away his ability to walk, to write, and to take care of himself. Despite all that he had seen and endured, however, he was a great and giving man who never complained. Rather than turning inward, my grandfather turned towards others in his life. He made a lasting impression on everyone he met, particularly in his efforts to reach out to and assist others uh, post-liberation. He once said, quote, encouraging words from other survivors have made it possible for me to speak. For the ones who did not survive, the ones who died after liberation, and the ones who are unable to speak for themselves. For him, telling his story was never easy. Despite his liberation in 1945, it was not until the mid-1970s that he began to speak openly about his experiences in the Holocaust, but he rarely did so to us, his grandchildren. I think his fear was that telling of the own, his own horrors that happened during his life would somehow jade our lives. Speaking in 1979, he said, only in the last three or four years have I been able to get the courage to speak up. For many years, the feeling was you weren't allowed to speak. And that stayed with me, and I'm sure many others share that feeling. We are crippled emotionally as a result of what we had to go through. We will, we try, and we must keep on fighting, even though it is so difficult to do. Now, to free speech. It is, of course, no exaggeration to say that people who grew up in Nazi Germany were not allowed to speak. Even before being imprisoned in the concentration camps, however, my grandfather and others were forced to wear a yellow Mogan David, the star with the name Jude on it. The Nazis restricted where he could go and required him to get permission before he ventured out. And importantly to him, it was illegal to send mail outside the country. The government would censor it, reading every letter that came into and out of the country. My grandfather, in fact, was once questioned by the Gestapo for sending mail outside of Germany. And he, rec he recalled, I was happy that I got out alive from the Gestapo building because, as you know, the Gestapo is tremendously harsh on everybody. It didn't have to be a Jewish person. Anyone who was against the Nazi regime would be punished. So it is fair to say that even before he formally became a prisoner in the concentration camps, he was a prisoner in his own country, stripped completely of his right to speak. Once he reached the camps, as you can imagine, things only got worse. Prisoners were forced to remove all their clothing, sit as barbers sheared their hair, and have numbers tattooed on their forearms. Then they worked. My grandfather recalled, while marching, all of a sudden, I saw one guard step close to a prisoner, pull his cap from his head, and throw it about 20 feet away. The prisoner, who had to have a cap on at all times, jumped out of line to retrieve it. A gunshot followed. The prisoner was killed. What for? Because he had stepped out of line. Because this guard was a barbarian who did not care if he shot one or if he shot 10. It was right for him to kill. It was right for him to destroy other human beings. Despite witnessing and experiencing some of the cruelest acts of man during his time at Auschwitz, my grandfather continued to believe in the importance of humanity and finding the best in people, not the worst. Until the very end, my, my grandfather always believed that humanity and kindness could be found in even the most horrific conditions. He relayed stories about the repeated acts of humanity that spared his life acts committed by fellow prisoners in the concentration camps, people who had nothing at all to gain through kindness and everything to lose.
including their lives. One particularly moving story involved his interaction with the nurses in the camp hospital. Now the word hospital is a cruelly ironic word in this context because many who visited the so-called hospital never came back. The hospital's purpose was to separate the weak from the strong and to make sure that only the strongest were allowed to work. As one might expect, my grandfather became frail and malnourished during his time at the concentration camps. The camp's policy was that no patient in the hospital could stay there for more than two weeks. Knowing that he was too sick to recover in two weeks, which would mean certain death for him, the prisoner nurses in the hospital risked their own lives, moved him from room to room, falsified hospital records so that his extended presence there would not attract any attention. This act of kindness at great risk to the nurses' own lives spared my grandfather. He recalled the story in his own words. After about two weeks, I was told all of a sudden, you're gonna be released today, even though you are still too sick. But don't worry, you're only gonna be released on paper. You will not leave the hospital. I will try to keep you here as long as possible until you are well again. I was moved to a different room. I did not understand why at the time, but I was just told to keep quiet. In another instance of humanity in the midst of darkness, my grandfather told of the story of three fellow prisoners, three dear friends of his who attempted to escape from Auschwitz. My grandfather assisted in their escape plan, which also included another prisoner, the camp electrician. My, grandfather, my grandfather's friends had revealed to him that the plan involved shorting out the electric fence surrounding the camp, and in that moment, they would escape. My grandfather, who provided his friends with civilian clothes, was privy to the plan, um, but decided not to escape with them. As a non-Polish-speaking prisoner, he knew that he would be unable to avoid detection outside of the camp fences. Therefore, he stayed behind as his three friends carried out the escape plan. In an act of betrayal, the camp electrician revealed the group's plans to the guards, not knowing of my grandfather's role in it. When his friends were caught and hanged as punishment, they could have admitted my grandfather's involvement. Instead, they refused to divulge the secret. As my grandfather watched his friends pay the ultimate price, he never forgot their deep loyalty, which had spared his life. I came across my grandfather's own description of the story recently in reviewing his records. To put the rest of it in his words, on a Sunday afternoon, my three friends were hanged on the gallows erected in the middle of camp a place where every morning thousands of prisoners stood at attention for roll call prior to going to work. As part of my work, I took my three dear friends down from the gallows, knowing that they had not betrayed me. They had kept their word, and I had survived. Deprived of his ability to speak during his formative years, my grandfather made it his life's mission to share his story. The difficult and sometimes painful lessons that it conveyed were part of why it was so important for other people to hear it. As I grew up, I realized that my grandfather was someone who had strong beliefs and would not back down in the face of adversity. As all of my colleagues would emphatically attest, both past and present, he imparted that trait onto me. Let me tell you a story that I used to tell uh, new admittees to the, to the Minnesota bar when I swore them in. One of my most memorable experiences for my clerkship uh, was at a time when I actually disagreed. It was rare, but I disagreed with a position taken by Justice Thomas. I can't tell you which case or even what the case was about because I continue to owe a duty of loyalty and confidentiality now, even 19 years later but I can tell you that I spent more than 30 minutes in Justice Thomas's office trying to respectfully persuade him 
of what I thought was his misguided view of a particular area of law. Now, I want you to think about that. I was 28 years old at the time. I was three years out of law school, and I was telling an 11-year veteran of the United States Supreme Court that I thought he was wrong. As you, as you probably suspect, knowing Justice Thomas, um, I did not have any success whatsoever in persuading him that I was correct and he was wrong. In fact, he told me after I was done persuading him that I had convinced him even more so than before that his original views were correct. But advocating for my views was the right thing to do. Why? Justice Thomas taught me a lesson that day by indicating that he respected my willingness to express my sincerely held views and to stand up for my beliefs, even when I was the only one who happened to hold them. This lesson actually echoed one that I had learned years earlier from my grandfather. Defend your beliefs, no matter how unpopular they may be, and that is always the right thing to do. There was another lesson in that experience, too. Justice Thomas listened very closely to what I had to say, even though I suspect that he was already firm in his own views. My grandfather taught me that as important as, it impor as, important as it is to defend your beliefs, it is equally important to listen closely to what others have to say. These lessons stick with me today. They inform my understanding of what the First Amendment means. The Supreme Court has long held, for example, that the First Amendment protects the right to receive information and ideas. The Nazi regime, as you might expect, was fundamentally opposed to any ideas except the ones that they endorsed. It restricted speech in every way you can imagine, from compelling Jews to wear the yellow Mogan David to punishing citizens for saying anything critical of the regime or its leaders. Even the mere threat of non-conforming speech was enough, or otherwise my grandfather would have never been dragged to the Gestapo building to answer for the simple act of sending mail. It is nothing short of remarkable to me that my grandfather, while experiencing this kind of widespread and systematic suppression, came to be the curious and avid listener that he was. Once he came to America, my grandfather sought out the community of other Holocaust survivors. Among his greatest accomplishments was working on behalf of survivors to successfully obtain financial assistance for other survivors. Most importantly, when meeting other survivors, he constantly reminded them how important it was to be proud of being Jewish. His stories remind me that my Jewish heritage and faith are an integral part of who I am. And fortunately for me, the country I had the privilege of growing up in is one that has protected the exercise of my Jewish faith, again, by virtue of the First Amendment. I, unlike my grandfather, feel fortunate that I've never had to choose between my religion and my life. I do not think it is an accident my grandparents ended up here. From its founding, America has been a religious refuge. From the early settlers onward, people have come here to escape religious persecution. The Constitution, thankfully, reflects this tradition. Consider what the First Amendment tells us about what it means to be an individual. Unlike what my grandparents experienced in Nazi Germany, no one in this country is just a number, with or without a tattoo. Freedom of speech and the free exercise of religion recognize that our values may be different, our beliefs divergent, and still the government has no right to tell us what to believe or what to say. Next door neighbors can be Democrats, Republicans, Muslims, Jews, or any other host of things. And each of those underlying beliefs is protected. Importantly, we are loud, but we are not forced to wear those beliefs on our sleeves. We can speak about them, we can pray about them, and we can even associate with others who have the same beliefs, again, all under the umbrella of the First Amendment. It's hard to imagine any set of values 
that is more uh, at odds with how the Nazis treated my grandfather. During his years in the concentration camp, his captors made every effort to erase all evidence of his identity and sense of humanity. They tattooed a number on his arm and took away his name, his belongings, and even his clothes. They told him that he was a Jew and nothing more, but then didn't allow him to act like one. Luckily for my grandfather, he was able to maintain a sense of identity despite the best efforts of his captors. He always remembered the importance of maintaining connections to community, to identity, and to religion, even when the easier and more natural response would have been to become detached. Even through my grandfather's most difficult days, he refused to forget either who he was or the community of which he was a part. So what do all these lessons from my grandfather have to do with us? Us as lawyers, us, me as a judge, I think there's some important lessons we can learn. To start, his experiences remind me about the wisdom of the Constitution. From setting out our enumerated rights to protecting those rights through a system of the separation of powers. It also brings into sharp focus the importance of the rule of law in society. In large part, the evils of the Holocaust were a result of the personal views of just a few powerful individuals. They were able to use the law and the legal system to achieve the ends that they desired. It was instructive, though as you might imagine, extraordinarily difficult when in high school I decided to do a book report on Mein Kampf, which was penned by Adolf Hitler. You may ask why. I was wondering the same thing at the time, but deep down I wanted to understand my family better, I wanted to understand my heritage, and I wanted to understand what they went through. And I wanted to understand what, what, what motivated the horrors of the Holocaust. It was in reading that book that I realized how a single person or a single movement, if left unchecked or unaccountable, can pervert the rule of law. If those in power can lead with their own sense of what is right and what is wrong, without the constraints of the rule of law, then our most important institutions can become co-opted and our safeguards in society eliminated. The danger is never too far away. And we, we talked about that a little bit earlier. John talked about it in his introduction. We always have to be careful to ensure that our freedoms are not whittled away by expediency. One case from my time on the Minnesota Supreme Court immediately comes to mind. In a case called State versus Crowley, the question was whether the state could, no, could criminalize the making of knowingly false statements about police misconduct. Now that sounds pretty innocent, and it sounds like bad behavior, but I noted in my dissent that this type of law came close to prohibiting the very type of speech that is at the heart of the First Amendment, speech critical of the government. And it did so through a criminal sanction, likely deterring many citizens, not only those making false statements about police misconduct, but everyone from making any complaints about police misconduct, true or otherwise. We call this in First Amendment parlance, this is the one piece of doctrine you'll get today, uh, the chilling effect. Of course, lingering in the back of my mind was the simple fact that the Nazi regime made it a point to define truth and falsehood too, which left few, my grandfather and others, willing to speak. Another case that comes to mind is a more recent one, one that I decided shortly after I joined the Ace Circuit. It's called Telescope Media versus Lucero. You may well have heard of this one. Um, it got quite a bit of coverage right after it was decided. It involved videographers, folks who owned a family business and they produced wedding videos. They wanted their videos to promote a certain message, celebrating marriage as a sacrificial covenant between one man and one woman. For that reason and that reason alone, the Larsons were unwilling to produce wedding videos that depicted same-sex weddings. The problem for the Larsons was a Minnesota public accommodation statute 
that said if they wanted to produce any wedding videos at all, they had to provide them for everybody, regardless of the underlying message they were trying to promote. In my majority opinion, which was actually the first of its kind uh, to my knowledge, I took the view that their videos were protected First Amendment expression, no matter how unpopular their views might have been. Minnesota's law, in turn, was a form of compelled speech because it required the Larsons to speak favorably about same-sex marriage if they chose to speak favorably about opposite-sex marriage. Now, there's little doubt, and I know this, that many people are offended or troubled by the speech in Telescope and in Crowley. But once we decide, and I want you to remember this, once we decide that government can prohibit offensive speech, speech isn't really free anymore. For example, the Supreme Court held in the 1970s that neo-Nazis could march through a Chicago suburb filled with Jewish residents, many of whom were Holocaust survivors. Speech of that type, you may not be surprised by this, offends me deeply. But you know what? That's not the point. As the Supreme Court has put it, bedrock principle, the bedrock principle of free speech is that government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society itself finds the idea offensive or disagreeable. Keep in mind that's a right that we enjoy. It's not one that my grandfather had. As he said of his experience at Auschwitz, I saw then what concentration camps meant, the destruction of the human being, of his dignity, of his self-esteem, of his confidence, of his beliefs in God, and of his beliefs in his fellow man. This is always the emotional part. In wrapping up, I want to let my grandfather's words speak for themselves so you can get to know uh, how I got here. My grandfather made the following remarks at a group of new Americans in Kansas City on April 22nd, 1979. I'm sitting before you in my wheelchair, the lifeline for my daily independence, disabled from the after effects of malnutrition and mental stress during the times I was a slave laborer and prisoner in labor in the concentration camps. I sit here before you with extreme emotional and physical pain. With all my handicaps, I am humble and thankful that I'm able to be here and represent the ones who cannot be here. You who came here before because you care for your fellow man, please listen. Spread my words around. The people who are not here should know that there is a spokesman who knows what it means to survive, who cannot forget his sufferings in the concentration camps, and who knows of the sufferings of the survivors who cannot speak for themselves. I was transported in a freight car, unknowing my destination to Auschwitz. I was then taken in an open car to Auschwitz-Buna, the IG Farben chemical complex, which is part of the camp. I remember being stripped of civilian cloth running in a cold April rain. I remember shivering not only from the cold, but also from the fear of what would happen next a prisoner tattooing the number 117022 on my left forearm. Suddenly, I didn't have a name anymore. I was just a number. But even with no name, I still knew who I was, I still had my identity, and I still knew about my upbringing, my roots. I was so young, just a teenager. Already in my young years, I had experienced a life that most people never experience in a lifetime, much less survive. At that time, I could not comprehend that I would die. I probably didn't even understand what death meant because I was so young. I had not lived enough. I had just survived. Liberation, what did it mean to us? You try to find members of your family, but you know most of them are not coming back. You immigrate to new and other countries, new surroundings, new language, new customs. You find a job. You work hard to support yourself and your new family. You get accustomed to your new country. Finally, a free human being. Suddenly, though, your thoughts come back to a time when you were subjected to inhumane treatment. The joy of liberation and freedom somehow gets lost with those inner feelings. 
You say, something is wrong with me. You question yourself. Why did I survive? Why? All of a sudden, life becomes a struggle again. Who can you complain to? Maybe no one wants to believe that we are suffering from the after effects of the Holocaust. Some people believe us, but not the ones that are responsible for it. Right now, we are still, right, we are still fighting for the damage done to us, for our rights. I am speaking facts and the truth for many survivors. We, the survivors, have to let the world know that we will never again allow another Holocaust. All of you here in this room, may I call you my friends, we must speak up and we have to let the world know that we are proud of our heritage. These words do, are, really encapsulate my grandfather's spirit, not only because he survived the most unspeakable of human tragedies, but because of who he became and what he taught me. It is important that we remember not only remember his words never again, but that we also never forget what people like my grandfather, grandfather, grandparents endured and the lessons we can learn from it. All I can say to you is what my grandfather emphasized to me. I remember, Grandpa, and I will never forget. Thank you. Haunting presentation. Uh, so now we're going to be joined. Joel, come on up, and uh, Josh, you can come on the uh, on the screen. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, by Professor Josh Blackman and Joel Griffith. So so Josh, who there he is, is an associate professor of law at uh, South Texas College of Law in Houston. Uh, he specializes in constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and the intersection of law and technology. After graduating from the George Mason Law School, which is now the Scalia Law School, he clerked for Judge Kim Gibson in the Western District of Pennsylvania and Judge Danny Boggs on the Sixth Circuit. Uh, in addition to being a regular contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy, which will mean something to all the lawyers listening in, he is also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and the founder and president of the Harlan Institute. He's the author of three books, including two about the first, uh, the first two of the three Obamacare cases that were decided by the Supreme Court, uh, he has also written, <coughs> excuse me, uh, extensively about the cancel culture, which he has experienced firsthand, uh, and about the rise in anti-Semitism. Uh, to my far, uh, from my far left, is my colleague uh, Joel Griffith. Joel is a research fellow in the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity here at Heritage. He's a graduate of Chapman Law School. He spent some time uh, in private practice. He was also an investment manager. He served as a research, the member of the editorial uh, board of the Wall Street Journal. And he was a deputy research director at the National Association of Counties. And he was also the director of the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Uh, Joel has also written on a variety of topics, including uh, co-authoring a recent article entitled Combating Hate Without Championing Censorship, and another entitled Combating Hate with Freedom, Not Censorship, the example of anti-Semitism. So we're going to have a, a, a free-flowing discussion, but I'll, I'll start it uh, this way. I'll say, look, you know, the, the Judge Strauss's rather moving presentation raises many issues that we are grappling with uh, in this country today. Uh, the threat to free speech that is posed by an insistence that people post trigger warnings before saying anything that might be deemed controversial uh, or offensive, and by today's cancel culture. The threat to religious liberty in cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is still pending, the Arlene's Flowers case uh, that the Supreme Court just declined to hear that raised very much the same issues that Judge Strauss talked about in his videographer's uh, case. And also the threat posed by rising anti-Semitism as exemplified by the rise in hate crimes that are perpetrated against Jews and the boycott, divestment, and sanctions or BDS movement uh, that appears to be uh, growing. So Joel, let's, let's start with you. You've written about uh, current threats to religious liberties and the rise of anti-Semitism. Uh, you've pointed out that there are entertainers, politicians, uh, other uh, influential people who continue to use anti-Semitic tropes about Jews controlling Washington uh, and Hollywood. Uh, and that anti-Semitism has also taken root on college campuses. In one of the articles that I just referred to, 
that appeared in the Washington Times, you wrote the following. A free people should be mindful of the totalitarian embrace, including by the former Soviet Union, of bans on hate speech. Giving government the power to prohibit the expression of universally repugnant ideas also risks the suppression of speech deemed a political threat. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit from your perspective about sort of the rise in anti-Semitism and elaborate a little bit about the dangers that you see uh, in terms of banning speech that is deemed to be hateful. Yeah, thank you. Over the past few years uh, here in the United States, especially within our political entertainment world, we have seen numerous outbursts of anti-Semitism. And it's not so much the anti-Semitism that targets people for being Jewish per se, it's this new acceptable mode of anti-Semitism, which goes after, which attributes to Jewish people the perceived misdoings of the Jewish state. And we see this with a number of politicians, and such as Rashida Tlaib, most notably over the past few years, repeatedly denigrating the Jewish state of Israel and going beyond that and actually suggesting that those people in the United States, many of whom are of Jewish heritage, that value there being a safe place for Jewish people to actually live and thrive, suggesting that they harbor a dual loyalty, that they're not loyal to the United States first, that they're loyal to a foreign power. And this is something that she and numerous other people in Congress repeatedly say, and they have no misgivings about sharing the stage with other noted and open anti-Semites, such as Reverend Louis Farrakhan. Um, this is very troubling, not just, it shouldn't be just troubling to people like myself who are Jewish, um, but to others for targeting an entire group of people in the United States with such hate. That is very, very troubling. And, and, and as private actors, uh, we should be condemning um, not just them speaking in that manner, but actually condemning the, the poison from which it comes. Uh, but we also see a movement with some, some who are well-intentioned to restrict the ability for them to engage in such speech. And we see this gaining a lot of traction within the United Nations, for instance, um, with attempts um, under the guise of promoting human rights, um, with attempts to restrict hate speech. And they do a, a twist, a twist on, on the words, um, saying that not just speech that incites violence, which is an imminent act of violence that is likely to happen from somebody who's spreading a particular thought. But um, there's an attempt now within the United Nations to ban any speech that would incite hostility towards somebody else. And that is a danger. That is such a broad restriction. And it should come as no surprise that countries such as Pakistan, China, um, Russia, Cuba, have actually signed on to such a definition because those types of tyrannical powers understand that the best way to control people is to actually control the sharing of an opinion that, as you just discussed, is offensive. Yeah, well, hate speech uh, against a nationality can very easily uh, well down a slippery slope in terms of, of criticizing a government. Uh, and of course, a number of the people whom you point out who have used these anti-Semitic tropes would be horrified, and rightfully so, if uh, when people make speeches about uh, you know Muslim Americans and question their loyalty uh, to this country. I, and you know, again, uh, uh, Josh, Judge, feel feel free to jump in. I, I am curious to ask, uh, though, about you know how, what do you do to counter this rise in anti-Semitism? I should point out, by the way, that, that several Jewish leaders in Europe have also favored things like banning hate speech, and, and how do you get around the distinction between people who have a legitimate, perhaps a legitimate beef with the Israeli government and separating that from anti-Semitism? Anti Anybody can jump in on that. I'll, I'll come in for a minute. Um, uh, first off, um, Judge Strass, that was, that was beautiful. Um, I, I know how much emotion and heart you put into that and to bear it for the world to see um, is such a tribute to your grandfather. Um, may his memory be a blessing truly forever. Uh, and you're putting words on paper will keep that memory alive um, in perpetuity. Uh, I'm really grateful uh, that uh, John invited me. It's my second heritage event in about a week. So I, I'm a ringer at this point. Sorry, I couldn't be there in person, uh, but soon enough we'll be in person together. Um, my perspective on this topic is perhaps a little bit informed by an incident I had a couple of years ago 
Uh, I'm a law professor. I often speak on the First Amendment, a topic that's dear to all of our hearts. My job depends on the First Amendment. Um, I was giving a lecture at the CUNY Law School in Queens, New York, um, and the topic was the importance of free speech. Seems like an important topic. Uh, the students there didn't like that topic, and they were protesting me, and they were trying to shout me down. The video's on YouTube, you can find it. But one of the more stunning aspects of that incident was that students were sitting there calling me a Nazi and a fascist. And, you know, my grandparents, like David's, were, were Holocaust survivors. Um, you know, they, they, they died when I was very young, so I don't, I don't remember them very well. Um, my grandfather died before I was even born. Um, but if they would know that one day their, their, son, their grandson would be a law professor and would be traveling the country speaking about the law and the Constitution, and that some students in a New York law school called their grandson a Nazi, uh, they, they just could never fathom it. And this was an instructive experience because one of the students explained to me how things work. Um, there's a Jewish person. I was simultaneously both an oppressor, because I have white privilege, and I was oppressed because I'm Jewish. I'm in this weird intersectional pyramid somewhere in the middle. Of it. For Jews, pyramids are good imagery, right? We build them, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just very strange. And, and this is a sort of textbook dichotomy that critical racial theory teaches, right? Everyone must be stratified based on the level of victimhood. And Jews just don't fit in that pyramid. We, we just don't belong. You know, in the lifetime of people still exist today, there was slavery. I think David used the word slave, and that's an important word to use. There was slavery, right? This wasn't just an, an aspect of the 1860s. This was among people who still live today. Um, there was another incident at Stanford recently that I think speaks to this sort of cultural divide. Um, the university had the diversity, equity, inclusion training, um, and they basically separated black people and non-black people, right? And there were these two groupings. And the training basically castigated Jews as white, powerful, privileged members of society that contribute to systemic racism. And they rejected the notion of any sort of Jewish victimhood or any anti-Semitism from the agenda. Um, so Jews occupy this very strange place in this, in this culture we have today where in the last 70 years, we were subject to a genocide. Um, yet it's sort of just, oh, whatever that was in the past, you know, that, that happened. But let's talk about everyone else's oppression. Um, uh, and I'm, I don't care about double standards. It's simply not important. But to John's point, how do you combat this? You have to recognize it, right? If you learn about the Holocaust in school for five minutes and move on and you know, spend time on everything else, you don't know about it, right? It's just something that happens. Maybe you'll watch Schindler's List. Maybe you won't even ever see the movie. It's kind of fallen out of the playlist. If we have any realistic hopes of fighting this scourge, which has existed before our country, before our constitution, before Christ, it's been around forever. If there's any hope of fighting anti-Semitism, um, we must speak about it. Um, Judge Strass brings his beautiful words to your stage and shares his story. I hope everyone watching this on YouTube and, and, and later re recognizes this, but um, we can't forget, we have to be vigilant. And I, I think Jewish people have a certain obligation to keep repeating this because in every generation, uh, from generation to generation, anti-Semitism rears its head in slightly different forms, but the, the effect is just the same. Oh, well, I was just going to say, um, Josh is exactly right. Um, you know, the antidote for offensive or disagreeable speech is not to regulate it or limit it. The antidote for it is more speech. And so we were actually talking a little bit beforehand um, just about, you know, our shared interest in this topic. And I talked about the fact, I often get, I get this at law schools, and I often get asked, what would have happened if we had more avenues for speech in Nazi Germany? Would hate speech have been worse and the Holocaust have been worse? Or would it have maybe lasted, you know, a, a shorter amount of time or not happened at all? And I tend to think the latter, um, which is Nazi Germany um, had, you know, robust uh, anti-hate speech laws. And the fact of the matter is, is everyone who wanted to object to the Holocaust, the ordinary citizen in Germany, may have thought they were alone. If there was some medium in which they could speak out and join together, I think that may well have contributed to, uh, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, 
but may have shortened the life of the Holocaust. And so my viewpoint has been just the way to deal with this is, is more speech. I think that, that speaking out, as Josh mentioned, is the way to combat anti-Semitism. And as a judge, I can't do that quite as much. I can't take you know, stances on political issues and speak out politically, but I applaud everyone out there who does it um, because it is so important to point out wrongful behavior when you see it. You want that, um, yeah, if you, if you look over the, um, the past year to take um, Nick Cannon, for instance. Nick Cannon is uh, an entertainer, uh, and he had a podcast in which he shared a lot of conspiracy theories that are completely detached from reality, such as the Jewish people, those that believe they're Jewish, that we can you know, prove our heritage, that they're not the real Jews. And he went into a lot of explanations about how he learned this from his elders, elders in the community, uh, many of whom are actually academics. Well, the solution to those types of theories being spread that do engender anti-Semitism really isn't canceling his contracts, removing him from Twitter. You've got to get to the root of the problem. Why is it that so many people in the academic communities in which he was part of and learned from, why is it that they are having free reign, that they're spreading these theories without pushback from the academic community? And within some of these religious communities in which they rub shoulders with people such as Reverend Farrakhan. Why is it that these community leaders aren't recognizing the hate that's spreading and doing their part to educate those that follow them? And in our political sphere, we have people that are clearly spreading anti-Semitism, such as Representative Tlaib, but is the solution blocking her from Twitter or is it as the onus on those that share her politics domestically, is the onus on them to clearly call out that hate? and to make it clear that what she is saying is untrue and harmful. So, obviously, I mean, we're talking about anti-Semitism, but the threats to religious liberty uh, extend beyond just uh, threats to Jewish practices. And the cancel culture, uh, you know, is certainly pervasive for, for political beliefs, personal beliefs about things like traditional uh, marriage. Uh, and, and views about religion and the First Amendment in our society are, are clearly changing, not for the better, uh, in my opinion. So you now have these cases, for instance, that you talked about the videographer, where secular interests in terms of, of promoting uh, LGBTQ plus uh, rights are, are you know, in conflict with, um, uh, with religious adherence. Uh, and, and people's views about the value of free speech are, are changing. So I, in 2019, uh, the Campaign for Free Speech conducted a survey about people's views of the First Amendment. 61% of Americans uh, agreed that free speech should be restricted. And 51% uh, of Americans believe that the First Amendment should be rewritten uh, to reflect today's cultural norms. The numbers were, were worse, by the way, among uh, millennials. 57% uh, believe that the First Amendment should be rewritten. And 54% uh, believe that hate speech, which was not defined, should be criminalized. You, you, you pointed out that in a number of countries, it is criminalized, including you know, things like blasphemy codes in some majority Muslim countries where you know, that's a capital offense. Uh, if you violate that. How on earth did we arrive at this point? And what can we do about it? I think that's um, the, the, oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, no, Judge goes first. I was just—I was going to say, I—you know—you—you you got to the root of why I'm giving this speech because I am—I'm profoundly worried about our country and our views of our freedoms right now. Um, when I see people thinking it's okay to cancel what someone else has to say, um, when I see people um, trying to, um, you know, impose their own views on others and 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 drown out the views on which, um, you know, on which they disagree, all of that worries me. Especially when most people, as John says, think that's just perfectly okay. Thinks that's the way it should be. That the that the that this this minority of people who are supposedly offensive, saying offensive things should be drowned out and they should be canceled. Um, that kind of stuff worries me. Well, I can tell you that um, as a lover and adherent to the Constitution, the answer is not to rewrite the First Amendment. Um, 
I don't know how to fix the problem except for, ironically, through more speech, through more education, through trying to tell everyone and to inform everyone why speech and religion were such a fundamental part of why we came together as a country and formed the union. Um, it is really that First Amendment, it's, you know, some people, some people argue about, you know, the order of the amendments and which one is the most important. The First Amendment is the First Amendment because it was put there, it was the one they, were thought, they thought about and it was the one that most reflected the traditions of what we were trying to accomplish as a country. And so um, I just think that, uh, you know, I'm hopeful. My hope is, is that this is just a swing in one direction, um, that maybe we'll, people will realize how important the First Amendment is and how important it is to listen to others. Instead of talking past each other, which is what we're doing a lot of the time today, we can talk with each other, just as Gorsuch has talked about that in terms of civility. I'm hopeful that things will swing back in the other direction where we'll be tolerant of other people's viewpoints. I'm not sure we're headed in that direction. I'm, I'm kind of a pessimist on that, but I'm hopeful that maybe it will swing in that direction. Um, but I don't know that there's a surefire answer on how to fix this, other than don't change the, don't change the legal system we already have. Yeah, like you, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Josh? Yeah, I'll handle the religious side with a shameless plug. Uh, I, I'm with a group called the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty, and we're actually writing a paper now for Heritage, the DeVos Center, on the relationship between anti-Semitism and religious liberty. Um, one of the most stunning aspects of the modern-day anti-Semitism fight is how these groups adopt positions that aren't really about anti-Semitism. They favor everything else except for anti-Semitism. You know, for example, the Anti-Defamation League, they love Employment Division versus Smith. They love that case. They want to keep it forever. If Smith is the rule, then we can have a ban on kosher slaughter. I would take a moment to the non-lawyers here to just explain what employment ah, Oh, sorry. I forgot where I was. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court adopted a rule nearly 30 years ago uh, in a case called Smith, which says so long as the government's acting with neutral intentions, they're not targeting religion, it's probably going to be okay. So, for example, if the government wants to ban the use of peyote by Native Americans, that's okay because they ban all controlled substances. This is a ruling that harms minority religions because minority religions don't have the clout to get the laws passed in their favor. So let's look to Europe, for example. In Belgium, Belgium banned ritual kosher slaughter. It's illegal. You cannot do what it takes to slaughter an animal. Jews have to import their meat from abroad. In other Scandinavian countries, they're very close to banning circumcision. Banning it for minors outright, you can't get it. Uh, Jews will have to import their meat and travel abroad to get kosher slaughter. Um, these are laws not enacted because of any hatred of Jews. They just favor animal rights and the so-called rights of children, right? They have other values that predominate. Um, if these laws were enacted in the United States, perhaps under the Smith case, they would be valid. Justice Alito mentioned those instances in a decision last term. Um, one of the projects we're trying to work on is to show you can have laws that are entirely neutral on their face, yet are anti-Semitic, that pr prohibit deeply rooted Jewish traditions to ban kosher slaughter, to ban circumcision. These are principles that people fighting anti-Semitism should be worried about, but they favor it because there are some other values that they choose above the rights of observing Jews. And I think that's a problem. Stay tuned for our paper, just giving a little preview. I see John's looking off stage, which means we're short on time. Is that right, John? No, we're, we're good. Keep, you, you, okay. I'm trying to take my verbal cues from a little like foreign screen. <laughs> well, you know, I, these bands are sometimes they're, they're, they of course have an impact on minority uh, religions and sometimes they're done for, you know, good motives like treating animals in a humane fashion, even though it, it impacts groups like, you know, halal butchers and kosher butchers and, and uh, Santeria practitioners. Uh, but they sometimes have political elements uh, to them. So the French ban, uh, you know, the wearing of burqas, I think, in, uh, uh, in, in public. Um, and this is all done under the guise of, you know, making us all part of it. They, they put it as a positive thing. We're, we're designed to bring a, co a cohesive uh, society without realizing that, you know, these are, these religious beliefs are fundamental to who we are, uh, and in many cases, a belief in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to our eternal souls. And, and those values, to even mention them on a stage like, uh, like this, you know, there are going to be people who think that I, I'm 
being quaint. I, I might as well be speaking in ancient Gaelic and just don't have an appreciation for, uh, for this. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what we do to, to bring this back. Any thoughts on that? Gun silence. Well, uh, you know, about um, how we sort of reinvigorate the spirit of, you know, even if you are not a believer, the importance of belief to the human spirit and who we are and how, you know, these communities, while some sects may seem downright weird to those people who are not members of those sects, actually create a diverse and enriching culture and, you know, make this country a better, more enriching place to live. Yeah, I think that, um, I think one way to um, perhaps make these, these religion issues more sort of normal is to have more exposure to them. Um, you know, I, I hate to take a page from diversity training, but there is some value there, right? When you're exposed to people of different beliefs, you tend to think they're not crazy, right? If you just see in the abstract, if perhaps people learn why Jews have ritual kosher slaughter, and it's actually designed to alleviate pain to the animals, it's actually designed to be a, a, a fairly beneficial way of, of slaughtering animals, perhaps they may be more willing to grant exemptions to these sorts of um, uh, issues. Perhaps if they realize that circumcision has been done for how old to Abraham? I mean, thousands of years, right? We've been doing this for a very long time, and it usually works pretty well. That 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 maybe you know modern health concerns perhaps should permit exemptions. Uh, the head covering example you mentioned in, in France is, is is insane. You, if you're a if you're in a public school, you can't wear any religious symbol. You can't wear a, a yarmulke, a kippah. You can't wear a headscarf. You can't wear a turban. Nothing. I mean, that's secularism to the to the nth degree. Um, these are policies that would make it basically impossible for Jews to live their lives. Um, and I think what needs to be done is to show that there are other values, there are values other than progressive secularism, right? That's not the only value that's worth protecting, that there is some worth in religion. I think, John, you posed this question, why is religion important? That's a very tough question in an increasingly secular society, but I think we have to explain why these values are worth protecting. It's not about bigotry. It's not about putting LGBT people, you know, out of business and they can't buy pizza anywhere and they won't get a cake and they can't have their weddings. It's about preserving certain values that are on the decline, but are still worth still worth protecting. Well, and, get, and getting at that, um, it, it is a true. The exposure helps. I remember, so I'm one of the few judges that stood for statewide elections. State Supreme Court justices often do, depending on what state you're from. And I remember traveling around the state, and I got the question posed to me when I was in a rural part of Minnesota. They said, you know, I was actually the first Jewish justice. In, in Minnesota, this 100 oh, years oh. after after Brandeis, I was the first Jewish justice, um, and I was asked the question, "How can you be Jewish, and sit on the Minnesota Supreme Court?" And I looked at the person puzzlingly. I don't think this person had ever met a Jew, to be honest with you, and I and I could have easily said, gotten angry, which is I was kind of getting like, "What what is this person talking about?" You know. But I just sort of calmly said, I said, well, you know, it, it entails certain religious obligations. I have to, you know, on Friday night, um, we celebrate Shabbat. I go to services on Saturday morning, so I obviously don't work during those times. But just like everyone else, you know, that's the weekend, and, and it's fine. So I can still do my work and be Jewish at the same time. Those two things are not, you know, not uh, mutually independent. But I realized that this was, this was being asked from a... Uh, uh, she really didn't know. This person really didn't know. And so I think part of it is exposure. So many people are not exposed. And it's not only Judaism. It's, it's all kinds of different religions on which uh, people are unfamiliar. And I think once they're exposed to some of that, you know, like we invited for my son's bar mitzvah, who's sitting right over there, I invited a lot of my friends, my colleagues on the court, who had never been to a bar mitzvah. And they came over and talked to me that following week about some of the things that happened during the bar mitzvah and why we did this and why he read from the Torah and why there were five independent readings of various people who came up and chanted and things like that. So um, I think that, you know, that, that, that exposure is a really important part of, of making people feel more comfortable with religion. How we accomplish that um, is a little unclear, but it is an important part. Right. Well, I, I not mean to give any uh, verbal or, or visual ticks uh, to Josh. We are actually running out uh, on our, uh, our time here. Uh, does anybody have any closing, uh, just closing thoughts that they would like to 
uh, to say. Sure, we'll take uh, one. We'll take we'll take a question. We'll take one 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 question. Go right ahead. You have a microphone right here. You're speaking on originalism, textualism. It helps to use Washington's letters to the Jews of Newport to interpret the First Amendment. I would think. Say that I, I didn't hear Washington's it. letter to the Jews of oh, Newport. Yeah. I would think if you use establishment of religion as it's not an organization, but it's more scriptural, and the government is actually under the Lord, it's under Judeo-Christian law. So you're dealing with textually, you can look at the originalism in a much more open way. I, 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 I could go on for a well, trending on hashtag I, First Amendment today again on a lot of tweets. but I don't know what your, your views are on that, but obviously George Washington very much to his credit for all sorts of reasons, uh, wrote a number of uh, letters while he was in office assuring minority religions that they were welcome in America and that they were going to be allowed to live their lives as they saw fit and thrive in this country just as anybody else could. Uh, and that is, uh, that is a, a wonderful message to remember. Uh, and perhaps things like that letter ought to be shared more widely. Uh, with people. Uh, well, with that, we have run out of time, so please take a moment and, and thank our panelists today. Thank you. Thank you.